This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The firm's Global Markets Institute, or GMI as we call it, is out with a new report called What the Market Pays For. For this episode, we're specifically focusing on one of the report's central questions, why do smaller companies receive higher valuations for new initiatives than more mature companies? To help us answer that question, we're joined by Steve Strongen, head of Goldman Sachs Research, who is an author of the report. Steve, welcome back to the program. Always great to be here. Give us a little context to begin with. Perhaps the key finding of your report is maybe not totally surprising, but the market rewards companies for consistency and punishes them for surprises. Explain that dynamic. Happy to. We looked at how companies are valued by the market using a different methodology than typically you see in finance, one from uh, consumer theory. We use the same math used to figure out what a new kitchen is worth in a house or what legroom is worth on an airplane to understand what investors are paying for when they buy a company. And when you do that, what you find is they largely pay for persistence and forecastability or what investors usually call visibility. And what that comes down to is you look at the drivers of earnings and the drivers of growth, and you look at them to see whether if today's growth forecasts tomorrow's. If that's true, you'll pay a lot for it. If today doesn't really tell you anything about tomorrow, you're not going to pay a lot for it. And that's the really core of how the market looks at companies. Obviously, there's some downsides to that focus on predictability and persistence. One common complaint is it just makes management focused on short-term predictability and miss long-term opportunities that might require deeper investment. There's a sense in which that statement is really true. There's a tendency to want to take the annuity stream, if you want, over the moonshot because the investors are not interested in moonshots or if they are interested in moonshots, they would like to sort of buy them on a narrow basis and ones they specifically like. Managements clearly would love a chance to run their own portfolio of moonshots. The most famous example of this is how Google became Alphabet. They They put the moonshots over here? And kept the core business there. That's right. And that made it a lot easier for investors to understand the core business. And also, and I think this is the part that's underappreciated, it meant that the investors now had visibility on both how big and what the moonshots were so they could make a much better decision and a more informed decision about how much they were buying. You may have coined the phrase, I'd never seen it before, hope stocks. You talk about a fast-growing, for instance, company with a very singular focus. So let's say a biotech firm with a single drug that hasn't yet passed any clinical trials. Obviously, in a company like that, there's a lot of upside if things work out, but the financials aren't predictable at all. But the market is comfortable putting high valuation on those kinds of stocks. So why is the market so enthusiastic about hope stocks while focused on predictability for the more mature companies? There are two parts to the answer. The first is that those hope stocks are predictable, but in a very specific sense. They take on a very narrow risk. You know what that risk is. And if you're right, that stock does really well. So there is visibility, but it's not visibility into the company's consistency, but about how the company will do if what you expect to happen happens. And so you'll see this in low-quality oil stocks, where if the oil price goes up, they'll do great. You see it in a pharmaceutical startup where we know what the drug is, we know what it's being tested for, and if it tests out well, we know the size of the disease. 
So in a risk sense, these are very predictable stocks, but it's not the same kind of prediction. The second aspect to it, which I think is the part that really is misunderstood, is that when you're valuing hope, it's the way the market looks at downside. There is no question, if anyone has ever sat through any investment presentation ever, that people like dwelling on the upside. You could do a sort of Google search of downside presentations, and if you got anything on the list, it would be a short list. It's in, only in the forward-looking statement that they put the downside risks. That's right. right. Yeah, It's read by the head of investor relations at the beginning of the call. So. <laughs> but from an investment standpoint, the real key is that those stocks have less downside than their bigger brethren. We call this deep pockets risk. But it really is that the narrow biotech company only has so much money it can use, so therefore only so much it can lose. And it's presumably spending all its money on that one thing. Thing. Right? right. And so that you Which know, is sort of easy to assess. Very easy to Maybe assess. Maybe not predict, but assess. Assess yeah. and very limited. Mm-hmm. Where if that same effort was put inside a larger company, if the effort didn't work, you might spend the money again. And if that didn't work, you might spend it again. And worse, if it goes really badly, you might get sued and have somebody else decide how much money you're going to spend. So that when you do the actual math of the calculations, typically those hopes are worth a little bit more inside the big company than they are in the little company if everything works out. But if things go badly, the downside in the hope company is small where the downside in the big company is enormous. You talk a little bit about how the hope stocks are priced like options. I really like that part of the report. Explain in layman's terms what that means and why it's important to think about the pricing of a hope stock. Sure. I'm going to discuss it two ways because I think both help people understand. The first is the pure options way. They're more leveraged to the view. You have to put up less money in an option. You still have the same exposure to the top end. Therefore, you get more exposure for less money. So from one investment standpoint, that's a great answer. Same way you'd buy an option on a stock. Same way you'd buy an option on a stock. The second, which from an economic standpoint is actually more important, is much like the option, again, it controls the downside. Is that when things go wrong, you have a very fixed size of loss where inside of a big company, the loss can grow and grow and grow. And so, one, less money to get more exposure to the upside, but more importantly, you don't have the same exposure to the downside. And so, like an option, what happens to the prices as these businesses mature and become more predictable? The two converge. And very often, what you'll see then is the hope will get bought by a big company and goes in. For instance, if you look at the pharmaceutical industry, The typical pattern is you do the development of the drug in technology holding companies that are fairly complex institutions. Then once you have the drug, you spin it into a specialty pharmaceutical biotech company that's very much structured like an option. And then if it's successful and works, a big pharmaceutical company will buy it and put it in the portfolio as a predictable drug. Once it's got approval, it is an annuity. That's right. And so you see this notion of the risk structure determining who should own it and why throughout the lifespan of the drug. Obviously, this dynamic frustrates a lot of big, mature companies who feel like these cash-strapped startups get a free pass, essentially, from investors, and they're doing all these neat things and innovative things in-house that are completely discounted by the market. 
You mentioned the phrase, talk a little bit more about deep pocket risk and what, and what you mean there and, and why you basically shouldn't whine. This is just a fact of life. <laughs> this is one of those aspects of human nature. You're doing this project because you believe in it. You love the upside. You want to talk about the upside. You're excited about it. The problem is from the market standpoint, what you've really communicated is we're going to keep spending on this project until it works. And so you think you're explaining the upside. What you're actually doing is committing to the downside. And the more you talk up that upside, the more the market hears, we're going to keep spending. And so you see a very counterproductive dialogue develop where the company thinks the market didn't understand I have to explain this better. And then they explain it more. And they actually get hurt by it. Yeah. So when you think about today's startup landscape, the fast-growing private companies, the decacorns and the like, they often have multiple funding rounds rather than raising all their money at once. Is that in part so their ability to spend is inherently limited and so investors have less exposure to downside risk? Exactly. Or more precisely, they get to volunteer for each bit of additional expenditure. So we're going to give you the money for the first trial, but no more. And then once we see the results of the first trial, we'll decide whether we want to participate in the second trial. Where if I give you the round for both trials up front, then the management's deciding. And so that ability for the investor to decide is something the investor is willing to pay for. So what are the implications for large companies that want to invest in innovative, riskier projects? Should they spin those projects off, as you've said, or pursue them on a standalone basis? Or should they go ahead and develop them in-house as part of the larger firm and then just try to get the value later? There's a couple of answers to that depending on the circumstance. If it is important and has tremendous synergies with their existing operations, they certainly should do it. This isn't an argument about that. It is an argument that the market's not going to stand up and applaud and pay them for it until it works. It's just that you have to understand that the market isn't that interested in paying you in advance. Now, if it's a project that can easily stand on its own, then I think it raises some real questions about whether you want to keep it in-house or sell it. Because the capital costs may be cheaper if it's done standalone. It's easier to control the costs if it's done standalone. And it's easier to get immediate valuation if it's done standalone. Against that is the synergies you can potentially get inside. You trade those two off and make a rational economic decision. We've seen different answers in different industries. In pharmaceuticals, where the risks are very high, the valuations are very high, and that ability to control downside is very important, we typically see these things spun into separate firms. On the other hand, in software, where the synergies are typically pretty high and the downside risk isn't that great, we typically see them stay inside. And both of those decisions make sense as a general case. Each investment has its own dynamic and has to be viewed separately, but it's basically always that question of synergies against cost control and risk, where the higher the cost control issues and the risk, the more likely you are to spin, the higher the synergies, the more likely you are to want to keep. So what can big, complex companies do to reduce depocket penalties and improve visibility for investors into their main business lines? There's two things. The first is, in terms of getting full credit for your own businesses, is structure your reporting so that people can see it, and they're as clean a line as possible. One of the short-term, long-term issues that you alluded to at the beginning is sort of non-recurring items in their various forms. 
the more your primary business is reported without non-recurring items, the easier it will be for the market to forecast the outcomes. The more you throw junk in, the harder it will be for the market. So cleaning up the reporting and making it easier will get you a higher value. In terms of the investment projects, there the answer is also visibility, but a slightly different kind. Instead of repeating the good side endlessly, spend some time on creating visibility so that the market can see what you're spending. So they understand the downside. They understand the downside, and it's more limited. Because if they can't see what you're spending, then in theory you could just keep spending forever. Where if they can see what you're spending, they get a chance to complain. You have to actually explain why you're spending. Justify it. All of that creates more discipline that's credible. So again, visibility is a good part of the answer. Obviously, you suggested talking too much about the great ideas and the innovation will actually hurt their valuation. What can they do to communicate the possibilities without bringing on the deep pocket penalty? I think there is sort of balance in the statements. Explain the upside, but also explain the uncertainties and where you're going to cut it off if it doesn't work. Every project has a potential failure in it. There are things that will cause you, should cause you to stop. If the market understands that you understand that, they're much less likely to invent horror scenarios to put in place of that process. What happens when the market thinks that the deep pocket risk is greater than management does, and investors are pessimistic that management will know when to do that, cut their losses, and get out? You get a short-term dynamic, which is valuations fall, they compress. That creates a big dialogue. Sometimes that ends the way it did in Google where we started, where the company changes their reporting and makes it easier for the market. Sometimes it just ends up having to wait until you find out the answer. The project succeeds, everybody makes nice, and the company gets the value from the project. Or the project fails and eventually the company cuts their losses. And then everybody agrees again. There's no dynamic or conversation that's going to get everybody on the same page while the uncertainty is there. So the best way of fixing that is to simply resolve the uncertainty. It's a really interesting topic, especially when you think about sort of where the market is today, private companies and public companies and how they trade. How did you decide to research this topic in the first place? At heart, this is a constant debate. The inability of large companies to get their just rewards is probably one of the most frequent refrains you hear from management. So trying to make it really clear why that's the case. The second thing, and you also see this in the newspapers a lot, is management's complaining that markets are too short-term. Markets are not short-term. Markets want visibility and they want persistence. It's not that they want short-term to hit the numbers. They just want to know that you can do that every quarter. That's right. Ad infinitum. At some level, the analyst just wants to be right when they do their forecasts. And if they're right, you're going to get paid for it. Yeah. So what surprised you most from doing all this analysis? I think two things surprised us most. The first was the sort of underlying genius of the market. And what I mean by that is that when we teach corporate finance, and I remember teaching it more years ago than I want to think about, we talk about forecasting earnings and discounting by risk. It's a fairly complicated process with lots of numbers that are sort of hidden. But the idea is risk against reward. When you actually look at what the market does, This is a very simple but incredibly effective way of accomplishing that that's somewhat different than we explain in the textbook. 
We're going to look at what drives earnings. We're going to look at how persistent that is, how forecastable, how long it's going to last. And that tells us how much to pay. That's exactly the logic that goes behind classic corporate finance, but it's a much simpler and more efficient way of putting it into practice. And so realizing the market was that much smarter than we had been when we designed the methods, I think we were surprised by it, how simple it was. I think the second thing that surprised us was the actual answers to that question. So the most classic thing you see on CNBC when you listen to them talk about earnings report, they beat on earnings, missed on revenue, the stock went down. Well, this explains that in a very simple way. Revenues generally are very persistent. Margin typically isn't. And so the market pays more for the revenues they missed than the margin where they beat. And as a result, you get a net loss. Now, right next to that is leverage, which is basically how much debt to equity the company has. And that's always had in the marketplace a kind of negative image. On the other hand, it's very persistent. Balance sheets, by their very nature, don't change very often. And so it turns out the market pays a lot for leverage and the return on equity from leverage, which is sort of counterintuitive to the way we often talk about companies, but makes absolutely perfect sense when you actually look at the numbers. This report's out. Clients are reading it. What kind of questions are you getting? Lots of interesting questions. I think the biggest one is could you come explain to our CEO the part about how talking too much about a project lowers the value? I think it's always a difficult thing when a CEO is excited about a new project to get them to talk a little less on it, even if it's making the market nervous. I think the second thing is trying to understand what this implies about how the company should be run. And this paper really doesn't talk about that. At core, the right way to run a company is to make the most profits the highest returns over the longest time for that. That, in the end, will create the most value for shareholders. What the paper is about is how to get the market to pay you the most today, both for what you're doing now and what you're going to do tomorrow, which is a very different question than how you should run the company. Let's bring it back to the central question of the episode. In a minute or less, why do smaller companies receive higher valuations for new initiatives? Two things. They automatically have less downside risk because they have less money to spend. And big companies overcommit in those projects, and it makes the market afraid. Thank you, Steve, for joining us today. Great to be here. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on May 1st, 2019. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. 
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.